our conversation. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. I think we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you all that our Cook, Eat, Learn series will be um, resuming again next week. Uh, so please join us all for that at 730. Um, and with that, I'd like to uh, introduce Dr. Jeff Parsonette, who will introduce our speaker today. Dr. Parsonette's a professor of medicine and um, a very valued colleague in our section of uh, infectious disease. Thank you. I needn't tell you, uh, tell you all how, um, how topical this session is today on tick-borne diseases. And I'm very happy to be able to present Dr. Peter Krauss, uh, who is currently a, a senior research scientist at Yale. Um, I've heard uh, Dr. Krauss speak at many meetings, and he's uh, really a leader in the field of tick-borne diseases. Uh, Peter uh, went to Williams College, then went to medical school at Tufts, and did his pediatric internship and residency at Yale New Haven Hospital and then at, at uh, Stanford, and was a research uh, fellow in pediatric ID at UCLA. He then uh, rose through the academic ranks at University of Connecticut, um, where he eventually ran their AIDS program and was uh, led their pediatric ID program, and is currently a senior research scientist at Yale. He is the, the author of 163 or something publications and 30 book chapters, and uh, recently had a major editorial in the Annals of Internal Medicine on newly encountered, newly discovered tick-borne illnesses. So a very topical subject, and I'm happy to invite him here today. I was going to, uh, just prior to having him speak, give a brief case presentation uh, to bring this topic home to all of us here um, of a patient who uh, we had in our ICU and then on the floor um, just last month. So as a way of introducing the subject. So the, the patient is a 56-year-old man who was transferred from an outside hospital for treatment of babesiosis. He presented to an outside hospital in Maine with a several-week uh, illness characterized by aches and pains, headache, diaphoresis, and malaise, eventually with high fever and rigors and nausea. He eventually uh, sought medical attention where he was found to have mild anemia, thrombocytopenia, uh, LFT abnormalities, and evident on smear, a, a babesiosis on, on, uh, in his red cells with a parasite load of 15%, which is quite high. Um, the patient uh, is status post-splenectomy uh, due to trauma at age 12. He also has multiple sclerosis, which has been quite stable and for which he receives interferon beta 1A. He's an Upper Valley resident, married with two children. His travel history is pertinent. And around Memorial Day and again in mid-June, he traveled to Westchester County when he, when he uh, walked through tall grasses without um, appropriate leggings and then uh, also traveled to Maine but he was probably um, already uh, infected at the time he went to Maine. He had no knowledge of a tick bite or rash. So at the outside hospital, they recognized uh, what he had and they treated him with clindamycin, azithromycin, and atobiquone and fluids. But he uh, became worse over the first hospital day with hypoxia, development of uh, bilateral pleural effusions, and he was transferred to DHMC for a higher level of care. He was started on quinidine uh, prior to his transfer here, and his parasitemia was 15%. Upon arrival here, he was ill-appearing, diaphoretic, in mild respiratory distress, with a high fever, uh, soft blood pressure. He had no rash, no murmur. He had evidence of, of pleural effusions, uh, and the rest of his exam was unremarkable. 
his paracetamol level was 25%, so 25% of his red cells had, had Babesia forms in them, hemoglobin 9.7, platelets down to 37,000. On the quinidine, his QT interval had risen, uh, placing him at risk for torsade, so it was stopped, and he was treated with atovaquone and azithromycin, but his condition worsened with worsening respiratory function, um, uh, basically pulmonary edema. He had uh, worsening uh, respiratory distress, so exchange transfusion was initiated, and that was done, which reduced his paracetamia somewhat, but on the next day, his level was up to 30% again. He was switched to a regimen of quinine plus clindamycin. He had a second exchange transfusion, and uh, on hospital day four, he was much improved with his paracetamia down to 1.6%. And he gradually improved and was discharged on the sixth hospital day on azithro azithromycin and atovaquone. That looked good, except following discharge, his paracetamia rose again to 8%. So clindamycin was added back to his regimen, since which time he's done very well. Um, we follow his parasite load every uh, week, and he's now had no detectable parasites for the past <clears throat> three weeks, and uh, he's doing well clinically. He tested negative for Lyme, and we also treated him with doxycycline just in case. So that's the case, and if we could then transition to the slides. And with that introduction, uh, I'll introduce Dr. Krauss. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much, Jeff. Uh, I really appreciate the invitation. It's certainly an honor to be here. It's not my first visit to Hanover, but uh, on the trip up from Connecticut, I was reminded the, of the great beauty of the region. I will say you're all very fortunate to be able to live and work in this area. Um, you're also very fortunate to have this medical center because the patient just presented. Uh, that patient's life was saved by, by this care. So uh, anyway, we're going to talk about uh, emerging tick-borne infections, Lyme disease, babesiosis, and Borrelia miyamotoi infection. Um, the outline of the talk is shown here. There's a lot to talk about. The ecology, epidemiology, clinical manifestations and complications, pathogenesis, diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of these diseases. So why these three? Uh, Lyme disease, Babesiosis, and Borrelia miyamotoi all share the same mix of these tick vectors and the same reservoir hosts. This is a world, these are worldwide uh, infections, and they're different species of ticks and reservoir hosts throughout the world. Lyme disease and Babesiosis are associated with a greater health burden than any other uh, tick-borne diseases in the United States. And Borrelia miyamotoi is the most recently discovered disease transmitted by Ixodes hard-bodied ticks. There are two major tick families. The soft ticks are agosid ticks. More than 200 species, a few species transmit soft uh, tick-borne relapsing fever. That's pretty much it. Hard ticks, and that, and that occurs in the western part of the country here. Uh, hard ticks, the ixodid ticks, are about more than 700 species. Various species transmit 14 different diseases. Here's a soft tick. I, most of you have probably not seen these. Um, they're similar, but, but also different from the hard-bodied ticks. And they're found in bedding and, and, and campsites in the, in the far west. Uh, and uh, they transmit uh, relapsing fever. The um, hard ticks groups are shown here. Uh, the ones we're interested in are these up here. Uh, in our neck of the woods, it's Ixodes scapularis. And there are three life stages shown, the uh, larval stage on the right, the nymphal stage, and then 
two adult stages, male, female, shown. These ticks are very small, and as you know, most people who develop tick-borne disease are never aware that they've been bitten by a tick. Um, we have certainly no time to go through these diseases, but I thought I would list them, uh, the amblyoma and dermis center, the other hard tick uh, groups. Uh, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, Tularemia, Colorado Tick Fever, Human Monocytic Ehrlichiosis, Southern Tick Associated Rash, Illness, Starry, Rickettsia parkii, Rickettsiosis, uh, 364D Rickettsiosis, and Heartland Virus. These are the ones, though, that we're going to, or this is the group that we'll be talking about today in three of these, Babesiosis. Uh, these are listed in terms of the, uh, the discovery of human, the first human cases. Um, Tick-borne encephalitis, um, which is a major problem in Europe. We do have tick-borne encephalitis in this country, transmitted by the Powassan or deer tick virus, um, or uh, caused by those viruses. Um, it's a pretty bad disease. About half the people have cognitive difficulty uh, following this infection on a permanent basis. So it's pretty, pretty devastating. Fortunately, there are very few cases that have been described. Unfortunately, there's some data that suggests that these are increasing. Uh, that there's an increased number of these cases uh, that have been observed over the past few years. We'll be talking further about Lyme disease, which I'm sure you're all pretty familiar with. Anaplasmosis um, is a rickettsial uh, infection, which um, is similar to Babesia in terms of its frequency. If we had time, we'd, I'd be discussing that, but there is no time to, to review that today. Uh, Ehrlichia murus-like infection is found in the Midwest, in Wisconsin and Minnesota, so therefore it's more focal, of in, more focal interest at this point. And then finally, Borrelia miyamotoi infection, which we'll be talking about at greater length shortly. This shows the, the uh, geographic distribution of Ixodes tick vectors. By the way, I have, I have some hoarseness, and uh, I'll be drinking water frequently. <laughs> um, it shows the uh, geographic distribution of Ixodes tick vectors. Um, you can see that uh, in, uh, in our area, it's Ixodes scapularis, um, Ixodes pacificus in the west. In Europe, it's Ixodes ricinus. Um, in Asia, Persilcatus and ovatus. And so in the temperate zones of the world, these hard body, these Ixodes hard body ticks are transmitting these diseases. In 1992, the National Academy of Sciences stated that babesiosis or lichiosis, which we now know as anaplasmosis, or that's what they were referring to, and Lyme disease are emerging threats to human health in the United States. Lyme disease has emerged. Um, it originally began, was first discovered in um, southern Connecticut in Lyme, near, near where I live. And, um, uh, from there, it's, it's spread outward, um, and um, you can see that this you know, geographic spread both in the, in the east as well as in the Midwest. And this has been, uh, Babesia has followed this emergent path, and we'll, we'll show, I'll show some slides about that in a bit, uh, and I think anaplasma as well. But Lyme is probably the most efficiently transmitted of these infections, and is the one that is far and away the most common of, of the diseases. And with this geographic spread, there's been a concomitant increase in the number of cases. You can see that they, in, 19, uh, in 2008, they were divided into probable and confirmed cases. This data shows us that there may be some leveling off of, of Lyme disease. And the actual number of cases is probably about 10 times that which is reported. Uh, we can get into that after the talk if you want, but that's an estimate based on several studies. Um, this same increase emergence has been seen with Babesia at a much smaller scale. Um, the white circles show the uh, cumulative state reporting because it wasn't until 2011 this became nationally reportable. And again, we see this, this sort of increase in the number of cases. 
Um, in one sense, I hesitate to show this slide because it shows that anaplasma is more common than Babesia in New Hampshire, but nonetheless, here it is. Um, I show this because you can, if you look at any of these diseases, you see an increase in the number of cases over time, with the most marked increase occurring with Babesia and with anaplasma. Notice also that you have had a case of Powassan in 2013, fortunately, very few cases. The other thing I'll point out on this slide, if you look at the ratio between Lyme disease and Babesiosis, it's about 30 to 1 or so, and that's important to think about uh, as I'm going to get back to that a little later in the talk. Why have these diseases emerged? Well, there's an increased recognition, diagnosis, and reporting of these infections. Hard to believe, but there was a time when people would have no clue about Lyme disease and what it looked like, uh, even after, you know, when it was first discovered. But over time, people learned this and are, are quite familiar with it now. Um, that's a, a little less true for Babesia and Anaplasma, which are more difficult to diagnose, don't have a pathognomonic sign that's easy to, di uh, to recognize. Um, but in any event, this increased recognition by both uh, healthcare workers as well as uh, the, the general public has been important in this emergence. Um, because the disease has probably has always been, or it's been here a long time, probably thousands of years. Um, we know that uh, this um, uh, hunter uh, that was uh, discovered on the uh, European Alps between Italy and Austria was, they, there's, my, my colleagues are not sure this is true, but anyway, they found some uh, genomic evidence of Lyme disease in that, in that individual. Uh, in this country, there was a condition called Montauk knee, which occurred in the 1940s and almost certainly was Lyme disease. It's been here a long time, but there, there's increased recognition. Uh, people are building their homes in wooded areas and areas where there are ticks and they're doing a lot of hiking and so on. So this is also accounting somewhat for this problem. And also, there's been an increase in the deer population. And the deer act to amplify the number of ticks uh, dramatically. And the number of deer have increased. Um, why? Because mountain lions and wolves have been eradicated. Um, and also, there's been an increase in woodlands in the Northeast. Um, if you lived around, the, around 1900 or so and were in New England, you would find that most of the land was farmland. There, there were not very many uh, woods. Uh, and the deer had been hunted and, uh, to almost extinction. Um, and the habitat was gone. Um, and in fact, there was a, an article in the New Hampshire newspaper uh, talking about a deer sighting uh, at that time. And then, and then um, uh, agriculture moved to the Midwest. The, uh, the woods returned, the forest returned to New England, and the deer came back. And when the deer came back, the number of ticks just exploded. This shows the life cycle uh, of tra or transmission of Babesia, but it was, this would be true for any of the agents we're talking about. Uh, by the Ixidia scapularis tick. So if we start with the adult stage in the spring, the female lays about two or 3,000 eggs. These hatch in the larvae. The larvae take a blood meal from a mouse, usually a white-footed mouse, and if that mouse is infected, the tick becomes infected, and you have an infected larvae. After that blood meal, the larvae can then, um, the larvae can then molt to the next stage, which is the nymphal stage. Now, the larvae molt after about uh, one or two weeks after their blood meal, but then they hibernate, they overwinter. And the following spring they come out and they're still infected and if they bite a, an, a, an uninfected mouse or an uninfected human, they become infected. After that blood meal, the nymphs then molt to the adult stage and the adult males and females get together on the deer. They preferentially feed on the deer and they're there together so they breed on the deer and the, the female requires that blood meal to have enough protein to lay her eggs. 
And so wherever the deer are, and, and deer may carry hundreds or even thousands of ticks. And um, so it, they just really amplify the tick number tremendously. So as the deer have returned, you have this great increase in tick number. Andy Spielman, who I first worked with when I started this, all of this work um, at the Harvard School of Public Health, did a, uh, a very interesting experiment. He got rid of deer on, on Great Island in Massachusetts, which is a small island off the coast. And with, by getting rid of those deer, the 50 or so residents uh, no longer had Lyme disease. And the number of uh, ticks infected, the number of ticks in general just fell, this plummeted. So eradication of deer would um, probably greatly ameliorate this problem. Uh, politically, I, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, if Powassan really becomes uh, uh, a widespread, I think that may actually happen. Powassan is such a bad disease. Okay, I'm going to talk first about Lyme disease fairly briefly. I know you're familiar with this disease, very familiar with this disease. Cause of the pathogen in the United States is Borrelia burgdorferi, sensu stricto. Uh, the target is, uh, tissues are fixed tissue, skin, joint, heart, and central nervous system. Transmission are by ixodes ticks. Trans time of transmission from the time of tick bite to the time the organism gets into your skin is about 36 to 72 hours. What that means is if you get bitten by a tick uh, this morning, and you pull it off by this evening, you will not get Lyme disease. Just takes a while for the organism to go from the tick gut into the salivary gland and into you. The incubation period is generally about a week, but it can vary anywhere from one to 31 days. So you could get bitten today by an infected tick and show symptoms a month from now. Diagnosis is epidemiologic. You have to live or travel in an area where there's Lyme disease. Um, symptoms, typical symptoms, which is generally EM. You can also do antibody, PCR, and culture in the lab. Treatment is doxycycline, amoxicillin, or subtriaxone. This is a slide of a, an EM rash, a, tar, a target lesion, which uh, this is a very old slide. This uh, is a patient who, uh, who, this picture was taken before people knew how to treat Lyme disease. And this, this rash started here with a tick bite, and it just spread. And if you were to biopsy any part of this EM lesion, you'd be able to culture Borrelia burgdorferi. And here on the edge, you have the leading edge, which is sort of a darker red more inflammation there as the new organisms multiply. But the rash looks often more like a, sort of an oval, uh, complete, uh, there's not a target lesion, it's just sort of an, an erythematous oval or, um, or circle. Um, here's a child with disseminated disease. Uh, this is the initial lesion, but there are other lesions that then appeared. Um, and dissemination usually does not occur, but it certainly can. And uh, the longer you go without treatment, the more likely you will have dissemination of the skin into other uh, tissue in the body. Clinical manifestation. There's an early localized disease with erythema migrans at the tick bite site. And you may have uh, viral-like symptoms, fever, muscular aches and pains, headache, in addition to or instead of rash. Um, about 10% of people have just viral-like symptoms. There's an early disseminated stage with multiple EM that we just saw, cardiac or neurologic manifestations in children. It's usually Bell's palsy, but can be meningitis, and meningitis occurs in adults, and, and adults get Bell's palsy as well. Late stage is arthritis, which usually occurs a month or two after the uh, acute disease if it's not been treated. And then there are chronic neurologic conditions, shooting pains, numbness, tingling of the hands and feet, problems with short-term memory. And then there's a lesion called acrodermatitis chronica trophicans, which occurs in Europe. There are other species that cause Lyme disease in Europe, Esbilii and Gorinii, uh, would be the main ones, and they can cause a chronic, uh, a sort of a scaly rash uh, that's called acrodermatitis chronica trophicans. We don't really see that in this country. 
Post-Lyme disease syndrome includes muscle and joint pains, cognitive defects, sleep disturbances, and fatigue. I wanted to mention uh, co-infection. Um, there have been a number of case reports of people getting Lyme disease and babesiosis. Um, we did the first study that was sort of comprehensive. That was in 1990s, way back in 1996. We had 240 patients who had Lyme disease. About 11% of them had babesiosis co-infection. We looked at the mean number of symptoms. Those who had Lyme disease had a mean of four. Those with co-infection, Lyme and babesiosis, six, statistically significant. And the duration of illness was increased by about a week or two when people were co-infected. And then uh, there's been a number of subsequent studies. The, the, uh, the frequency or incidence of this, I'm sorry, the frequency of this disease, uh, this, of co-infection has ranged from 2 to um, uh, 22, uh, 20, 22% in various studies. Um, I think it depends uh, on a number of things. It depends on uh, where you live, because there are areas where there isn't much Babesia or, or much anaplasma. Um, it also depends on the methodology used to define case definition. And in fact, that was shown in this Horowitz paper where, depending on the case definition, you have anywhere from 2 to 11% co-infection. The stricter the case definition, the, more, the, the, uh, the lower the co-infection rate. But for both Babesia and anaplasma, co-infection generally results in a, larger, a, a greater number of symptoms with a, a duration of illness a little longer uh, for Lyme when you compare Lyme, and, uh, Lyme alone versus the co-infected patients. Diagnosis is primarily epidemiologic. You, you want to know that you, you know, a patient who's never been or traveled or lived in an area where there's Lyme, the, the disease would be very suspect. And of course, a clinical diagnosis, which is usually EM. Antibody can help confirm the diagnosis, but it's not, there is not confirmation with antibody unless you have a fourfold rise in acute and convalescent serum. Identification of B. burgdorferi can be done in joint fluid, CSF, or blood by PCR and or culture. Uh, and this is confirmatory, but these have relatively poor sensitivity. <coughs> Treatment, doxycycline or amoxicillin for 10 days to three weeks is the recommended duration. Ceftriaxone, two to four weeks. Okay, we'll go on now to babesiosis. Causative pathogen or protozoan parasites in the phylum AB complexa. It, which includes, um, which includes um, toxo, includes uh, plasmodium and others. Um, target tissue or erythrocytes, transmission or ixodes ticks, but also blood transfusion, which we'll talk about. And rarely transplacentally, a mother infected can tra uh, transmit the disease to her newborn. Diagnosis epidemiologic, uh, again, it's travel in or, uh, or, I'm sorry, residence in or travel to an endemic area, but you can also live in Texas and get this disease because the blood has been transmitted from Nantucket to Texas and you get infused with that and you become infected. Um, there are um, symptoms are nonspecific febrile illness, which we'll talk about. Um, uh, you make the diagnosis really by laboratory diagnosis, microscopy, PCR, and antibody. Treatment is atovoquinone, azithromycin, or clindamycin, and quinine. This is Victor Babes. Um, he's a famous European pathologist, most closely associated with Romania, uh, this, uh, uh, but also Hungary, Austria, and he spent time uh, studying with Louis Pasteur. He was looking for the cause of cattle fever uh, in Romania. Uh, Babesia infect a very wide variety of wild and domestic animals, and it's a major problem for cattle producers uh, because it causes death or morbidity in cattle. 
And so he was looking for the cause of this and looked at some blood smears from these cattle and found this organism. And the organism and the name of the disease are, 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 are and the disease are named after him. This slide shows a, a thin smear on a patient with Babesia. You can see uh, these uh, ring forms, uh, about 10% parasitemia here. Anything above 10%, 10% or above, those, these patients usually are quite ill. Um, these are other slides showing the smear. This is a typical ring form, signet ring form. That may be confused with malaria, although malaria has these uh, hemozoan uh, uh, inclusion bodies that, that Babesia do not. Um, this is a troph form. This shows uh, a Maltese cross, four, four individual Babesia about to burst out of that red cell and infect other cells. This is pathognomonic. If you see this, you know you're dealing with Babesia. Uh, and this is an extra erythrocytic form, which you usually see only in heavy infestations. Um, Babesia is worldwide distribution. It's emerging. Its dis uh, dispersion has followed the pattern of Lyme disease. Uh, when they are chronically endemic in an area, they may have a similar frequency. Um, these show the various species. As I mentioned, there's over 100 species of Babesia infecting a wide variety of mammals. Uh, but those that infect humans are more limited in number. The United States Babesia microti, which is a Babesia, the reservoir host are rodents, um, is the most, um, most common by far and most common in the world. In the West, there's Babesia duncani, formerly known as WA1 or Washington 1. Babesia divergence-like um, cases, there have been three described in this country. In Europe, the most common, uh, form, the most common species is Babesia divergence, Babesia of cattle. Um, they also have microti, and they have another agent called Venatorum, or EU1, Europe 1. In Asia, Venatorum is now endemic in China, the second country in the world to have endemic Babesia uh, in northern China. Um, there's also microti and a species in Korea that's been identified as KO1. This shows, the, um, this shows that there's a spread of Babesia, Lyme and Babesia in, um, in Connecticut. And it shows the disease uh, transition from 19, or the change from 1991 to 2008. 1991 in red, and in green you have 2008. So if you look at... Um, if we say, let's go back to 1991, much of Connecticut, most of it, uh, was endemic uh, for Lyme. But for Babesia, it was really uh, this, just this area. Now, Lyme started in this area, too. If I had an earlier slide, the Lyme would look like this early on, like the Babesia. So Lyme is spread from the southeastern area uh, northward and westward. And the same pattern is being followed by Babesia. You folks have not a lot of Babesia here. You do have some, and your hospital will be seeing those severe cases because you're, you know, you have this uh, people feeding in cases from from New England. Um, so the hospital will see relatively more. But the point is that uh, it's likely that Babesia will spread north with, you know, cl uh, climate change and just the general spread of the organism. So I would anticipate over time you're going to see more and more Babesia. Um, so if we look at the number of reported cases in the United States, um, uh, there are about 30,000 Lyme cases reported and um, about 1,000 Babesia for a 30 to 1 ratio. We did a very careful epidemiologic study over 10 years on Block Island where we were able to identify both asymptomatic and symptomatic infection. Asymptomatic infection because we do a uh, biannual sero survey. And if people are seronegative in the spring and seropositive in the fall, and they've not had symptoms, we know they've been infected. 
So we, when we added up asymptomatic and, and symptomatic disease, and about a quarter of adults have asymptomatic disease, about half of children, we found these numbers. And this, we also found some asymptomatic Lyme as well. But if you take all those cases, we had 75 over that 10-year period, 50 of Babesia for a ratio of 1.5 to 1. And we asked the question whether this was just confined to Block Island. It turns out that what we, we couldn't do a serial survey on, on, in Connecticut, but what we did do is look at uh, uh, southeastern Connecticut. We looked at the major hospital there, L&M, that services the entire southeast region of the state. And we looked at the Babesia uh, case admissions, uh, the number of admissions uh, to the hospital, and found that the two, uh, the, um, the two per 100,000, the two were similar. This was statistically not significantly different, although there's slightly more from Black Island. So we concluded that this, that in certain areas, the Babesia relative to Lyme, the, the, the ratio is much smaller than what we see nationally. And uh, this is not just true for the island, but also for the southeastern portion of Connecticut. Anywhere where the two, we believe, anywhere where the two diseases have been around for a while. Okay, clinical manifestations. Same as Lyme disease, the time of, from the tick bite to the time you get the organism deposited into you is 36 to 72 hours. The incubation period is one to six weeks after a tick bite, again, usually about a week. But um, if you are transfused with infected blood, it, the incubation is one to nine weeks and as long as six months. The duration of symptoms, usually a week or two in people who are immunocompetent. It can go on for longer than a year in people who are, who are immunocompromised. We have asymptomatic infection. As I mentioned, 25% of adults, about 50% of children are asymptomatic. The classic illness is a viral-like illness with fever, chills, headache, fatigue, malaise, similar to the flu-like illness one sees or viral-like illness one sees with Lyme disease, very similar to anaplasma. And you really can't distinguish these particularly on, uh, by, <clears throat> by history. Um, on physical exam, there may be some clues. Patients with babesia may be anemic. There, there may be some splenomegaly, sometimes with hepatomegaly. But really, you need laboratory diagnosis to, to make the diagnosis. Severe illness and death occurs anywhere from 3 to 20% of patients. Um, and who is at risk for this disease? Those who are over 50, <clears throat> those who have no spleen, with a, those with HIV or HIV AIDS, those with malignancies, and blood transfusion trans, trans, uh, recipients. Um, there's a persistent relapsing illness despite standard therapy. And this is something that we found a few years ago, and I'll talk about that um, in, a, in a short while. Uh, and these patients are, usually have a combination of immunosuppressive factors, malignancy and asplenia, uh, malignancy and immunosuppressive drugs, all three, or more advanced HIV-AIDS. When we compare Babesia and Lyme, we see that both illnesses cause a mild to moderate, uh, both uh, diseases are associated with a mild to moderate illness. Complications of Babesia include ARDS, severe anemia, DIC, congestive failure, coma, and renal and liver failure. Whereas with Lyme, it's arthritis, neurologic disease, and cardiac disease. The fatality rate, as I mentioned, with Babesia is 3 to 20 percent, uh, less than 1 percent with Lyme disease. Really rarely, uh, rarely observed, although it, it does occur. I wanted to talk about immune factors that are responsible for the eradication of Babesia. We'll spend a little time on this and also contribute uh, it, it, immune, immune factors contributed to the pathogenesis of disease is true for many infections. Um, so macrophages are important. They ingest and kill uh, Babesia, uh, either they're outside the red cell or inside the red cell. Neutrophils also do the same. 
Antibody acts as an obstinant and helps clear the infection late in the course of disease. If you don't have good Babesia antibody, um, you are likely to have this persistence of infection. Helper T cells augment macrophage killing and B cell production of antibody. And the spleen is especially important, and it harbors all of these immune factors. And I'll show you a slide. The next slide shows this. Um, and really important in terms of getting rid of uh, the, 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 uh, the infection. Uh, in terms of disease pathogenesis, we'll talk about red cell adhesion and also excessive cytokine production. So here's a, a, a slide showing the spleen. Um, red cells course into the spleen, and they first get into the white pulp. If you remember from medical school uh, or your uh, general health classes, you have this white pulp, which consists of B and T cells. And then from that site, they go into the marginal zone between the red pulp and the, I'm sorry, between the white pulp and the red pulp. And Babesia-infected red cells here are gobbled up by macrophages, and if there's antibody on those uh, red cells, they will be gobbled up even more effectively. From the marginal zone, they go out into the red pulp. The red pulp is, there are a lot of venules. These are, you have a unique structure in that they act, they're sort of like a sieve. They have these openings that allow normal red cells to get in easily and go back into the circulation, whereas if you have Babesia present in the cell, it's, it doesn't deform as well. It gets hung up here, and macrophages will ingest and then kill uh, the infected red cell. Um, in terms of, I don't have time to go into this uh, in great detail, but um, this is sort of a simplified diagram from a paper that we wrote a while back. And basically what it shows is that um, that with asymptomatic infection, you have some increase in, um, you may have some increase with pro-inflammatory cytokines, and mitochondria in that case are in good shape, and the, the, uh, the vessels are pretty much free-flowing. When you get um, a mild disease, um, the number of these pro-inflammatory cytokines increases. Um, there are some toxic oxygen species that cause mitochondrial illness, so to speak. There are other physiologic events that occur um, uh, such as the endothelial cells in the, in the lining of blood vessels open up a little to allow, that, that happens to allow white cells out to the site of infection, while well, the site of infection is in the, inside the vascular system, but, you know, you can't, TNF acts this way with any infection. And what that does is it allows, in a severe situation, a severe disease where you have a very large amount of these pro-inflammatory cytokines, including TNF and IL-1, you have a, a separation of these endothelial cells. You have fluid going out into the, uh, into the lung, for example, where you get ARDS. So uh, with increasing severity of disease, you have a sort of a cytokine storm leading to many physiologic changes, and that leads to a very severe disease with complications and sometimes death. We looked at the issue of persistence of the infection after the onset of a disease. And what we did in this study is, we, this is way back in 98, we compared two groups of patients. Those, we had 25 patients who were not treated. They had Babesia, they were not treated. Why, how could we do that ethically? Because at that time, the only treatment was clindamycin and quinine. There are a lot of side effects with that combination, so the recommendation in those days was no treatment. You just watch these patients, and most of them did fine. Most of them, you know, cleared. If they didn't, they would get treated. So we had 25 of those patients, about 25, and we compared them with 25 patients who had more severe disease and were treated. This is a Kaplan-Meier curve that shows on the uh, x-axis the months after initial diagnosis, on the y-axis the percent of subjects that were infected. And we start with everyone's infected, and they all were ill for about a week or two. But what we did is we followed them every three months, and we did PCR on them. And uh, this is what we found. We found that the PCR 
uh, remained positive in a very large number of patients. And in fact, we had one patient who went out a little beyond a year and is still PCR positive. Uh, whereas if they were not treated, we had one patient who went out tw- uh, more than about 27 months. That was an interesting patient. Um, that patient, uh, we followed for 18 months, and finally he said, I don't want really to get stuck anymore. We said, we understand that. Um, so, but we said, you know, you ought to get treated because, you know, we don't really know what the outcome of this is going to be. He said, no thanks. Uh, so nine months later, he shows up in early spring in the ER with a rip-roaring case of Babesia and almost certainly a recrudescence of what he had. He was subsequently found to have a renal tumor. So this relapse is something we don't see in a, in a healthy individual, immunocompetent people, but we do see it in people who have um, severe disease. Uh, I'm sorry, who are, who are immunocompromised. And again, I will talk about that shortly. So what's the practical import of this data? The practical import is you have, you have some people who are asymptomatically infected and have a long period of time where they're infectious. Uh, you have other individuals who have mild illness. They never get diagnosed, but they have a long period of infectiousness. Now, in truth, this, again, is measuring, measurement of DNA. It's not, it's not demonstration of the organism. However, their DNA ACE is in the blood, and it's very likely, it's almost certain that these people represent prolonged, prolonged infection. So what happens is an individual is, uh, doesn't realize he's had Babesia or doesn't realize he's infected, goes to his local uh, blood donor uh, uh, area, gives blood, and, um, and, and infects someone else. So we have the problem of transfusion-transmitted Babesiosis. Interestingly, Babesia microta is the most commonly reported transfused pathogen in the United States. Now, it would, could not compete with hepatitis if there weren't screening. Uh, hepatitis is screened and therefore, you know, but if Babesia were screened for, we, we would be in better shape. More than 200 cases have been described and the incidence is increasing. Cases are reported in endemic and non-endemic areas. I mentioned blood being transported across, you know, from an, an endemic area to a non-endemic area. But also a person from Idaho may vacation on Nantucket, get infected, go back, and they will, you know, a month later develop a babesiosis. They'll get reported as, um, uh, oh, I'm sorry, they go back, they, that's one way it can happen, but they can go back, be asymptomatic, donate blood, and then infect someone in Idaho. Um, cases occur, therefore, during and beyond the season. Remember, the incubation period can be as long as six months, so you have cases occurring throughout the year with transfusion transmission. The risk is estimated quite variably anywhere from 1 to 600 to 1 in a million units of blood, depending on where you are. It's probably closer than most cases to 1,000, maybe 2,000, 1 in 2,000. So not common, but it certainly occurs. Symptoms are similar to those of tick-transmitted disease, often more severe because these folks are immunocompromised. There's a mortality rate of about 20%. The Rhode Island Blood Center instituted the first screening um, uh, approach for Babesia. They did antibody and PCR screening uh, as part of that study, and we found that that those who were screened did not develop Babesiosis. Unfortunately, the numbers were too small. Our control group, uh, there were cases of of Babesiosis, not enough to show statistical significance. This is still in process. People are looking for an ideal way to screen, and the... um, uh, the uh, transfusion community definitely is in favor of this, um, and I think it's uh, just a matter of time. Currently, if you go to give blood, you, you will be asked if you've ever had babesiosis, and if you say yes, you'll never be able to give uh, blood again. Now, that's a very conservative approach. It, it suggests that you, once infected with babesiosis, you will always be infected. We know with malaria that people who fought in the Pacific and were from the Midwest uh, 
uh, developed malaria, were treated, came home, were fine. 20 years later, they developed malaria without ever going to a malarious area. So a similar organism can hang out for a long, long time. Whether this is true for Babesia is not sure. Uh, it's a conservative approach to say you can't get blood if you've ever had Babesia. The problem is blood donors are in short supply, and it starts to diminish the donor pool. So we need screening. This is an algorithm for diagnosis of Babesia. So if you have a patient at risk, um, you would then do, probably the first thing you do is a Giemser right stain. Giemser is a little better than right, but they both work. If that is positive and the symptoms are consistent and the epidemiology is consistent, you treat them. If it was negative and the persist and symptoms are persistent or the patient's fairly ill, you'd want to repeat the blood smear and you'd, probably, you'd want to do a PCR and probably antibody as well, but especially a smear and PCR. If the uh, smear is positive, you'd treat. If the PCR is positive, you'd probably treat. There's always the concern about um, a false positive reaction. You have to make sure your lab's a good lab, but generally you treat. If, it's, if the smear and PCR are negative, you're probably not dealing with Babesia, but you still have to keep that in mind. And depending on the severity of illness and how long the patient's been ill, you'd want to repeat these tests, these tests and, um, and obviously look for another cause. Treatment uh, for mild to moderate diseases of tovaquone is thromycin for seven to 10 days. Resistance has been demonstrated with this combination. Actually, not published, but it's also been seen with clindamycin and quinine, but not very commonly, probably more common with the tovaquone azithro. But the nice thing about this combination is that it's relatively uh, easy to tolerate. For severe disease, the drug of choice is clindamycin and quinine just because there's been more experience, but certainly a tovaquone azithromycin can be given as well. Exchange transfusion may be life-saving, and I'm going to talk about that briefly. Partial or complete red cell exchange is potentially life-saving uh, adjunct to antimicrobial therapy. The indications are a high-grade parasitemia, greater than 10%. It was presented in our case uh, this morning. Uh, significant hemolysis, renal or hepatic, or pulmonary compromise. Problems with the exchange transfusion that need to be addressed from a research standpoint. What's the efficacy of doing a partial versus a complete exchange? <clears throat> What's the validity of current indications for exchange? Um, and actually, on the first point, we don't really truly know. It's not been shown through a controlled trial that the exchange makes a difference. It almost certainly does, but we don't know that for sure. And obviously, getting enough patients together to do this requires a multi-center uh, study, and that's something we're trying to do. Uh, the efficacy of red cell exchange versus plasma exchange versus red cell and plasma exchange needs to be looked at. When you do an exchange, you're removing infected red cells. Uh, when you do a red cell exchange, you're, you're removing infected red cells, cytokines, and other toxic products. Plasma exchange, you're, you're removing and replacing uh, this highly toxic mix with cytokines and, and other uh, toxins with uh, normal plasma. So that may work in some cases. Okay, we'll talk briefly about persistent and relapsing Babesia in immunocompromised patients. We did it. I, get, I was getting calls from all over from these patients who I, physicians would say, I've been treating this patient in a standard way, and they, they get infected. I stop therapy. A week later, they come back with the infection. So what should we do? So we started to put, just decided to put these cases together to see, see if we could come up with some protocol for these patients. So uh, we enrolled them from 1991 through 2005 from, uh, in the United States, um, from New England, New York, and Wisconsin, reviewed clinical and laboratory information from two Babesia groups, 14 case subjects who experienced this persistent relapsing problem, 
and 46 control subjects who had typical babesiosis. And this is what we found in terms of the two, uh, the two groups. The cases that, um, oh, I'm sorry, this is this, uh, somehow messed up. Anyway, four, 14 of these very severe cases, um, they, <laughs> uh, B-cell lymphoma uh, found in, uh, uh, I don't know what, oh, I'm, this is the mean age. Uh, B-cell lymphoma in 8%, uh, in 8 of the 14. A lot of them had B-cell lymphoma, far more than you guess in terms of just a random uh, referral. Other malignancies, three. Uh, ten of them had rituximab, a monoclonal antibody, antibody their product directed against B cells, and you give this for B cell lymphoma and other conditions. Uh, unfortunately, it decreases the amount of effective antibody you have. Um, so these patients had evidence of not having a very good antibody function. Their T cell function was also uh, diminished based on their uh, their condition. The 46 controls, there were a few immunocompromised, but generally not. So we concluded from this, after a lot of data analysis, that atovaquinone, azithromycin, or clindamycin quinine for six weeks uh, should be given, including two weeks beyond a negative blood smear. We had some patients that went, had without doing this, had gone like a year or more than a year, sort of treated, stop, treat, stop, treat, stop for short periods of time. You've got to treat for a sufficient length of time. They also need close clinical and laboratory follow-up after therapy is discontinued, including weekly blood smears, hematocrit, hemoglobin, for you know, at least monthly. I told the story at dinner last night. Um, we published this, this article with our you know, drum roll recommendations, six weeks, including two weeks beyond a negative blood smear. Three months after that came out, I got a call on the phone from, some, from a physician who said, we followed your protocol, and it didn't work. <laughs> so I said, that, that recommendation lasted for three months. Um, uh, essentially, most of the patients that will probably respond to that protocol, but not, not all. And you just really, for every, you have to individualize every patient who's highly immunocompromised and follow them carefully. Beryllium miyamotoi infection. Positive pathogen, Borrelia miyamotoi, it's a relapsing, in the relapsing fever Borrelia group. Target tissue are blood and fixed tissue. Uh, there's probably other target tissue as well, but so far we know that you can get meningitis from this, meningoencephalitis, and it's present in blood in much higher quantities than you would see with Lyme disease. Lyme is generally a fixed tissue Borrelia. This is a relapsing fever Borrelia, spends a lot of time in the bloodstream, and you can get a very high uh, Borreliaemia with this. Transmission is by Ixodes ticks. Transdiadial or transovarial. This means that the transdiadial uh, uh, transmission is through that ecological cycle that we saw. The tick gets infected from the mouse. The tick then infects you. Transovarial occurs when the female tick lays her egg. And so that means that the nymphal stage, the larval stage, the first stage after the eggs hatch, that stage becomes infected, and you get infected from nymphs and occasionally adults. Whereas with transovarial, the female who's infected Infected, transmits the um, uh, infection to her larvae, to, to, the, to the egg, essentially, and the larvae are infected. It's like a congenital infection. And that means that not only the nymphal and adult stage, but also the larval stage can transmit, and that has some, some impact uh, on terms of uh, infection, which we'll talk about. Um, we did a study in mice. We took infected mice with miomotoi and... Um, we, um, drew, we, drew, we took their blood while they were infected. We kept it at blood banking conditions for a week, <clears throat> stored it as you would human blood, and then injected other mice. They became infected. So it's likely that this is transmitted through blood uh, transfusion, but we don't know for sure. There's never been a human case. 
It's also likely that it's perinatally transmitted because other relapsing fever, uh, and, uh, pregnant women get fairly severe infection and their newborn infants can become quite, uh, quite ill. Or, or you may have, in fact, um, uh, a, a fetal loss as a result of the infection. Uh, we believe this disease is going to occur wherever Lyme disease is found. It's transmitted by the same uh, vector in the same reservoir host. Cases so far have been described from Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, Japan, Netherlands, and Russia. And the diagnosis is epidemiology, symptoms, blood smear, PCR, and antibody. Treatment, doxy, the same as for Lyme. Uh, doxy, amoxicillin, and ceftriaxone. And people do very well with that treatment, just as they do with Lyme, generally. These show uh, the spirochete um, in the original 46 cases described in Russia. Um, this is a dark field, but basically you can see that the, well, the spiraling of this is a little tighter than you would see with Borrelia burgdorferi, but they're similar. Um, you'd need a good microscopist to be able to distinguish this from Lyme. Just to give you a little history of relapsing fever, um, it was in 1868 that the blood of patients uh, uh, with relapsing fever were found to have spirochetes. And um, it was in 1903, they, soft body ticks were identified as vectors. Remember, this occurs in the far west um, in, in this country. And that was described in Africa. It is worldwide, the soft body tick relapsing fever. 1907, the human body louse was identified as a vector. And the human body louse, louse-borne um, relapsing fever is a real problem in World War I and II. Tens to hundreds of thousands of people died from relapsing fever as a result of louse-borne transmission. So in 1995, when the Japanese group described uh, a spirochete that they genomically identified as Borrelia, as a Borrelia in, that was not Burgdorferi, but, looked, but was identified with a relapsing fever group, uh, that was real news. Um, uh, because now you had a new vector, and that opened up the possibility of this disease occurring in a much wider range than, uh, than the other, than a soft, or a soft body ticks or lice was named after Keiji Miyamoto as a famous entomologist. In 2001, my colleague, Derlin Fish, um, discovered Miyamoto I and Ixi scapularis in Connecticut, sort of an accident. And I can talk about that after the talk because we don't have enough time, but it was interesting, serendipitous kind of thing. But a prepared mind was able to identify this as Miyamoto I. Uh, it, was found, it was found in Central Europe in ticks. And it was in 2011 that the first human cases were described <clears throat> out of Russia by Alexander Platonov. Um, and then the first human case in the United States, where it was sort of a simultaneous report in the New England Journal of Medicine. Gugliata presented a beautiful case of uh, meningoencephalitis in a patient. And we had a few patients we described, not quite as elegantly, because they were able to do PCR, or their PCR was positive. And in any event, uh, they were both reported in 2013. The genome was sequenced in 2013, and, and again, this again confirmed that this was a relapsing fever. Uh, Borrelia. So you have the Lyme disease Borrelia shown here, these various species, and then you have a number of species of relapsing fever Borrelia with Miyamotoi being part of that group. Um, we did some early epidemiologic work looking at the frequency of this disease, and we looked at uh, 639 people that, uh, where we had taken sera in a random fashion from New England, people living in southern New England, found that 3.9% were seropositive for Miyamotoi, 9.4% for Burgdorferi. <laughs> this figure is similar to what we find in our area for Babesia and Anaplasma. So it's, it's the same story in a sense. You have a co-infecting agent that's less common than Lyme, but nonetheless uh, significant in its, in its number, seroprevalence. 
This is from a study by Malloy, uh, which is the, uh, the largest case series so far in the United States. They had, I think, 51 cases. And an interesting point here is it peaks in the summertime, but the peak incidence is in August, whereas for Lyme disease, it's July. So this probably is due to the fact that the larval ticks are still out in August, and um, uh, they're, they're infecting at that later time point. Clinical manifestations, we don't know the time of transmission. Incubation period is thought to be about two weeks. Duration of symptoms from a few days for each episode, but you get these relapses, and they're separated by a period of wellness for a week or two, and then, then relapsing fever occurs again if the patient hasn't been treated. <clears throat> this is shown here from uh, two Russian patients from that first series. Here's a tick bite in an individual. They have fatigue, headache, and myalgia here. Uh, they developed fever, were hospitalized. They were IgM negative for, uh, for Miyamoto eye, uh, but then they were PCR positive. They weren't treated. They remained in the hospital, developed fever again, and then were treated. The hospitalization in Russia is a little different than here, especially for tick-borne infection, because they're very worried about um, encephalitis there, tick-borne encephalitis. So many of these, most of these patients who've had a history of tick bite and fever get admitted. Um, here, a uh, second patient tick bite, had a blip and fever, another one, and then a third. And then, because just that patient didn't come in for this, uh, these, this relatively low-grade fever, but eventually came in and was recognized uh, to have the infection and treated. Um, this shows, we were part of this initial study, and we compared the symptoms of Miyamotoi uh, grinii, which is another Lyme disease, uh, Borrelia, with patients we had, uh, Borrelia burgdorferi, um, and then finally went to the literature for symptoms in patients with another type of relapsing fever, Borrelia, Borrelia hermsii. And so I direct, so you can see there's fever, fatigue, headache, chills, and so on. You can see that fever occurs very commonly in the relapsing fever group. Almost all patients, 98%, 100% of those, but less so in, in, uh, Lyme, in, in the Lyme um, uh, disease patients. Erythema migrans found in most of the patients with, um, uh, I'm sorry, most of the patients with Lyme, with Lyme disease, uh, but in 9% of the Russian patients, they had EM rash. It wasn't fully clear that they didn't have a co-infection with, uh, with Borrelia burgdorferi or, um, or, or Grinii or Esvillii. So it's not clear yet whether Miyamoto eye can cause a erythema migrans rash. And finally, the mean number of symptoms was similar in both Lyme disease and the relapsing fever groups. And this is from the Malloy study. They found similar findings in terms of the symptoms. They had 8% of their patients had rash, um, and none of them described as EM rash. Complications. Uh, relapsing fever itself did not occur in all these patients. In fact, only 10% of the Russian patients had relapsing fever in 4% of the U.S. cases. Uh, we think this is largely due to the fact that these patients were treated early, did not have a time to develop relapse. Meningitis, meningoencephalitis described in two cases, immunosuppressed patients in um, the United States, one in Holland. Complications of other species, relapsing fever, pulmonary, cardiac, and perinatal infections and death, uh, but it's early on now in this whole uh, discovery process for Miyamotoi, and so we'll see if these other complications occur. They probably will. Diagnosis. For uh, comparing Lyme and, and uh, Burley burgdorferi and B. Miyamotoi, both, in both cases you want to make sure the patient lives or travels to an endemic area. 
The physical exam is very important for Bergdorferi. You look for the EM rash with Miyamotoi. That's going to be less helpful because they probably, most of them probably don't have an EM rash, maybe none of them. So therefore, laboratory testing becomes more important for Miyamotoi. And we see elevated liver enzymes with both diseases, more so for Miyamotoi. Blood smear, much, you should do a blood smear if you suspect Miyamotoi because you'll see the organism in many cases. PCR is, is valuable, and you can do small rodent inoculation if you have a research lab available. And then uh, culture, again, not done very frequently. So it's mainly blood, it's mainly blood smear, uh, PCR, and antibody. Antibody detection is useful in both, both cases. Treatment, as I mentioned, is the same as for Lyme. Doxy, amoxicillin, and ceftriaxone. A Yarx-Hirschheimer reaction with fever after you give antibiotics after the first dose or two occurs in 5 to 15% of the Miyamoto I cases. You have to be aware of that. Okay, finally, how do we prevent these diseases? Well, integrated tick management tools. If none of you, if any of you can, well, I highly recommend Kirby Stafford's Connecticut Agriculture Experiment Station Handbook, which I think you can get over the Internet. It's fantastic. Really well illustrated, very well done. So personal protection measures. Long, you wear long pants, you wear your socks over your long pants and long sleeve shirt, and about 1% of you would do that because it's summertime and who wants to do all that? But if you are going out into the woods, into the leafy areas, this is what you should do. Um, tick bite prophylaxis. So you can take doxycycline. That, if you take that uh, within 72 hours of a tick bite, you're probably not going to get Lyme disease. And it probably protects against Miyamotoi, although we don't know, and it probably protects against anaplasma, but again, we don't know that. So that is an option. Landscape modifications. Um, uh, landscape modifications are shown in that upper box. You can see the wood chips or stones between a wooded area, if your uh, property abuts a wooded area, and, and your lawn, and that, the ticks don't like to go across that, so that, that can be helpful. Um, chemical controls, the bottom, the bottom box showing that uh, spraying on property with synthetic insecticides or uh, bio, uh, botanicals, natural compounds. Host-targeted acaricides. <clears throat> um, you can put on DEET or permethrin, um, and that will help prevent uh, ticks from biting. Um, there are also acaricides that have been used on deer. Uh, there's a four-poster device where you, you have this sort of, um, uh, sort of a trough where there's corn. The deer want to eat there, but there are these rollers that have acaricides on them. The deer roll up against these acaricides, and it gets rid of the ticks on the deer. And this turns out to be effective. On the other hand, the problem is that rats get into this, and uh, <laughs> it's, uh, communities have thought twice about doing that, but, but it does work. There's also a... Um, uh, a, a, another approach, which is to put these acaricides on mice. And there's a little mouse house. They go in. There's peanut butter inside. They go in. They get this fipronil on them. And how well that will work uh, remains to be seen. But that's another approach. Um, <clears throat> host reduction or exclusion. We talked about deer reduction um, as a potential, a potential solution to the problem. And then finally, vaccines. There was a Lyme vaccine. It was taken off the market. So unfortunate because it did work but uh, there's a long history with that. Um, so there's no vac human vaccine. People are working on a mouse, an oral mouse vaccine um, uh, for Lyme disease, and again, it remains to be seen that that's going to work. Finally, education and behavioral change. Tell your patients where the ticks are, explain to them these diseases, um, and I think this really make a change. I personally don't go out to leafy areas. Um, stay on the tarmac and the beach. That's it. <laughs> Highly recommend that approach. <laughs> I do not wear a spacesuit, though. I don't do that. Uh, 
So, in conclusion, Lyme disease, Babesiosis, and Miyamotoi are transmitted by Ixodes ticks. Babesiosis and probably Miyamotoi can also be transmitted through blood transfusion perinatally. Geographic emergence of Babesiosis followed that of Lyme disease. Co-infection can increase the severity of acute Lyme disease. Miyamotoi uh, presents, uh, disease presents as a viral-like illness that may include relapsing fever. Diagnosis of Lyme disease generally is based on EM rash, while that of Babesia and Miyamotoi require laboratory testing. Current antimicrobial therapies for these agents are effective. The health burden of Lyme disease and Babesiosis is significant, while that of Miyamotoi is uncertain. Many people have helped me over the years, and I just, I, you won't be able to read all these, but I just show, show you that the, many people from many places were, have helped me, uh, and our funding has been CDC, Gordon Lura Gun Foundation, and the National Institutes of Health. That's Black Island, and I thank you. <laughs> Tremendous amount of information, um, very, very informative. Given the lateness of the hour, I think I'm going to ask for just two questions. Um, and I'll, I'll be outside afterward uh, so I can, if there are others. So, William? So, what's the attack rate with uh, the level of asymptomatic infection that's clear with each of those infections? So, with Lyme disease, I think it's estimated about 10% of infections are asymptomatic. These are estimates, but about 10%. And those, those clear, you know, I mean, you're able to clear that on your own. I mean, we don't, actually, the truth of the matter is we don't fully know that. Um, asymptomatic infection patients have not been followed over the long term, so some of them may develop uh, later complications. Um, uh, with Babesia, as I mentioned, it's about a quarter of adults and half of children. Uh, and Miyamoto, why we don't know the answer to that. Fairly stunned in 2013 with the identification of the Kawasan case. Yeah. So I, I just invite yeah. you to, to pull out your crystal ball on that organism. We have trouble now identifying suspect cases because of a lack of reagents, given how rare it is. But what do you think is going on epidemiologically with that pathogen? I think, fortunately, it's not transmitted so well. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, um, there is uh, data, there has been some recent data to show that the, it is increased in certain endemic areas. Um, and, you know, the, I, I mentioned the very high rate of, well, very high rate of cognitive problems after the disease, and some people are fully, are absolutely devastated. Uh, you know, we don't have the full, again, this is something that hasn't been researched enough, and the likely thing is that the, um, that the complication rate will be less than what we see now, because when you first describe a disease, you see the worst of it usually. It's also true that, I believe this is correct, that about 80% of encephalitis cases are never diagnosed. And we don't know what the cause is. So, um, we just simply need a lot more research. I'm hoping, well, obviously we all hope that this is not going to increase a lot, but if it does, I really do think it's going to change things. I mean, people are, people are frightened of Lyme disease, and they don't know as much about Babesian anaplasma when they hear about this. And if this is really increasing, it's going to be, at the present time, it's still very uncommon. And up here, you know, one case in, in five years, I mean, you know. Yeah, but, but I think it's extremely important to monitor this. And more research is needed. The shortage of reagents makes it hard for us to monitor yeah. at the state level anyway. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Thank you very, yeah, very thank much. Thank you.